Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Do Your Fandom Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. And as always, we are here to talk to you about everything nerdy and pop culture and fandom related. So, uh, Jim, how you doing today, man? You know, not too bad. It is a uh, it's a new day, it's a new dawn. Everything seems to be progressing pretty swimmingly. So, uh, nothing to complain about. Doesn't stop me, but nothing to complain about for real. Right. No, no major complaints. No major gripes and grievances. I got a, a, an odd one, and and I'll tell you this. I I, I know you know. I was given uh, a plethora of of free goodies for having worked at uh, uh, Starbucks headquarters in Seattle yeah. recently. Yeah, lucky uh, stiff. We we tore down a bunch of their uh, 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 what they call their shopper experience lab, and I'm not sure how much of this I'm supposed to talk about, but I'll tell you what I guarantee uh, the people at Starbucks aren't listening, so <laughs> whatever. But uh, I was uh, we were in charge of uh, tearing down the uh, uh, the Starbucks shopper experience lab, so we ended up uh, they were just getting rid of a lot of product and a lot of. Uh, uh, just stuff they were just shoving it all out the door and so uh we ended up taking home just truckloads of shit that we could sort through and and so uh, among the many things that i ended up uh taking with me was uh enough coffee tea and cocoa to choke a horse i mean i've been giving out a lot of it to anyone who has either a want or a desire for a hot beverage of any kind and so and being as it's winter that's probably a pretty lengthy list of folks Oh my goodness, yes, and and it's amazing how many people are truly addicted to the bean, man. But yeah, uh, it is uh, one of the earliest international exports, and still to this day, one of the most successful. People got to have their coffee. But in addition to that, they got rid of all their like decorative material that they had up there, uh, so we were able to pick and choose through a bunch of like glassware. And I got this really cool uh, uh, cast iron teapot that I have my eye on because I've been going and working there for off and on for the last couple of years so i've been in and out of the lab and so i see all this stuff there and it's like stuff that i'd say oh that's really that's a really cool teapot and uh, i mean coffee uh, pots are cool and coffee itself is awesome but you're being calling my friend why don't you spill the uh, beans <laughs> pun definitely intended on the biggest score from oh, the takeaway from that particular endeavor which i am insanely envious of i gotta say uh starbucks has ended up uh furnishing my new game room in uh, it's my intention to hopefully, uh, in the next calendar year, kind of move into our own place and have our own environment. And and uh, I certainly don't have the room for a game room in this current domicile that I live in. Um, but I've apparently started collecting things for my eventual game room to include my not just all the Shiloh Prychak's awesome new wave toys replicate uh, arcade cabinets but also your brand new PS5 and all your legacy systems but um, oh yeah they 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 gave me uh, uh, a pair of TVs and And not uh, just any old TVs and we're not talking and not talking any TVs uh, I got a 60 inch and an 80 inch 80 inches of uh, sharp aquos goodness and and i tested it with the ps4 before putting it in storage and let me tell you my friend that is a uh, gorgeous it's fantastic it's that is a whole life lot of real changing estate. it is yeah. a lot of real estate i won't have to squint so hard at the small text on the on the games anymore <laughs> Which is a gripe for, you know, I said I had no complaints <laughs> earlier, but that's something that, uh, as I'm getting up there in years, 4K or not, the uh, the tiny print a lot of these devs are putting in the uh, the menu items and the subtitles of these games is, uh, 
it's getting to be a little bit egregious. I'm, I'm, it's kind of pissing me off a little, to be frank. I gotta tell you, I've been playing uh, Assassin's Creed. Uh, my wife yeah. likes to watch me play the Assassin's Creed game, so I took it back a few, and, and I started playing Assassin's Creed uh, Origins, which is the Egyptian one, and uh, it's fantastic. I've loved every second of it so far. Uh, the text is incredibly small. I have to it get is. up and, and move across the room to to kind of see it if it's something super important, but... Uh, uh, I got to tell you, that's on a 48-inch screen, which is what I rock normally in my house. So even getting that 60-inch screen would have been kind of a, a boon and probably a lot easier to manage, if all being told. But uh, that 80-incher, uh, she's she's gorgeous, and I can't wait, and it's fantastic. And <sighs> Tech moves so fast. I remember in 2009 when I got my tax refund, I was super stoked to be able to upgrade from my 32-inch Sony Trinitron tube TV that I had at the time. And I uh, remember being super happy to be able to pay only 800 bucks for a 43-inch 1080p TV at Best Buy. And, you know, that's, what, 12 years ago now. So in the last couple of years, I upgraded to a 55-inch 4K smart TV. And then when my mom's TV died, I gave her that TV. And I thought, eh, if you can get a new TV, you might as well upgrade. So I got myself a 65-inch and any bigger is not going to fit on any piece of furniture that I have. Right. But, um, yeah, the, the big old the 65-inch 4K smart TV, I think, and that's one of those things you can pay as much for as you want. There's no real limit on those things. Some of the, the uh, Sharp and Samsung higher-end TVs can go for two, $3,000. And when you get mm-hmm. into 8K, you're talking even more than that. But I think I paid $398 for my TV. And uh, picture's gorgeous, does all the gaming stuff I need to. I can read the print without having to get all the way up and scroll over to the screen with my little feet. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, uh, TVs are, they, they've come way along in, in, in tech and, and way down in price, but still that, that 80 inch TV, you, you've got my, uh, my envy for that one, my friend. Yeah. And like I said, they've inadvertently started furnishing this new game room that I don't even have yet, which is great because I ended up getting the 60 inch and I got the 80 inch and those are probably going to go on alternating walls. So I can do like retro systems on the 60 or do like the new age shit on the, on the 80, which would be great. But then, in, in, in true fashion, I also ended up getting a, a, a Starbucks beverage cooler, uh, which is really cool. It's like a, like a four-foot-tall or three-and-a-half, four-foot-tall cooler um, that they use to sell their Starbucks drinks out of uh, grocery stores and shit. So uh, I got one of those from them as well. And so uh, I've got just the perfect beer cooler, the perfect TV... All I, I need just need to, to hook you up with a couch, and you're set. Right. I just need a bar or something else to throw in there, and I'll be straight. But uh, it's it's been an interesting couple of days. I got to say, this last last week yeah. has been really super interesting. So uh, I, I'm looking well, good forward on you for to... that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's been interesting. So I'm looking forward to that, and 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 I mean that's off in the future, but it really gives me something to look forward to and a kind of a motivator to move into a house yep. big enough to contain all of that yummy goodness. So, but that is not actually what we wanted to talk about today, and we could sit around and wax uh, nerdy about the shit that I got for free from Starbucks, but uh, that's just, that's nobody else wants to hear about this shit. <laughs> uh, so once again, we want to thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Fuel Your Fandom podcast, and uh, uh, like I said, uh, we got a couple of ways you can get a hold of us. Uh, you can get a hold of us on our uh, Gmail address, which is fuelyourfandom at gmail.com uh, but today we wanted to talk about kind of this weird 
uh, phenomenon. Uh, and, and if you're in the pop culture media at all, you're going to notice uh, what we're talking about almost right away. Uh, and of course, what the, we're talking about today is uh, video game movies and why they always suck. <laughs> and I mean, there's no putting too fine a point on that. Pretty much video game movies suck. And, and, and counter to that, uh, movies based on video games usually suck. Why is that? And, and it kind of breaking down that phenomenon. Now, uh, a lot of uh, Hollywood culture right now is a remake, reboot, retread kind of culture. There is a lot of uh, lack of originality, uh, for lack of a better term there, uh, in the Hollywood mainstream. So if it's a, a valuable property in one, you're going to try and find it in the other. And I mean, and I think that's pretty yeah. much a given. Jim, you've spent enough time. And that's something I have a quite a bit of passion about because I yeah. try to, you know this, and uh, you, you've, uh, I, I originally knew you under the screen name of the director because you've done some filmmaking, and I, I spent about uh, a couple years, I, I, about eight, ten years ago, I, I tried to really make a push to be a screenwriter. Um, actually gained quite a bit of ground on it, but things fell apart for reasons that have nothing to do with the ability that I had or had, did not have to do it. Just some right. personal stuff in my life that kind of came along and derailed that dream. But I spent... I, I dipped enough of a toe into the Hollywood system, and I, I've, I've kind of kept my finger on the pulse of that uh, enough to know, or enough to at least get a pretty decent picture. Because uh, I do listen to some other podcasts. There's a fantastic podcast called Script Notes by two guys named John August and Craig Mazin, both of whom are working screenwriters. John August wrote uh, the Aladdin movie. He wrote a couple of the Charlie's Angels movies with Lucy Liu and Drew Barrymore. Uh, he did a great movie called Big Fish a number of years ago. And Craig just won an Emmy for... Um, uh, the Chernobyl series on HBO. He also wrote the last two Hangover movies and Identity Thief and one of the Snow White and the Huntsman movies. Both very accomplished screenwriters. They both know their craft inside and out. And they've been talking quite a bit over the last couple of years on their podcast about how Hollywood, I mean, you know, even before the pandemic shut down the movie theaters and things have moved so hard to streaming, which Disney is leading the forefront on uh, with all their stuff with Marvel and their Disney films and Star Wars, obviously. Right. Um, yeah. But the, the, the movie industry is... is um, Ever since Netflix really came along, so we're talking like maybe seven to ten years, um, it's got kind of a long tail on it. They've moved more <laughs> towards streaming in, in big ways, but it's also had some really interesting effects on the, the screenwriting and, and the movie-making community to the point where, like you said, um, there's a lot of retreads, a lot of remakes, a lot of based on, a lot of things that are old movies being remade, um, old TV series getting picked up, comic books, that sort of thing, sequels. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that in most Hollywood uh, studios will not gamble the money they need to in order to shoot, uh, promote, produce, release a film, which is astronomical amounts of money. Often the promotion can cost as much as the rest of the movie put together mm -hmm. to get these films out. Right. And so they, in order, if they're going to invest that much money, they almost want to have if not a guaranteed, at least a reasonably assured return on that investment. And the only re way that they can really achieve that these days is to work with properties that they assume have a built-in audience, whether that's from a novel, a comic book, a video game, some other form of media, an old movie people still have nostalgia for that they're going to remake for a new generation and a new audience. So economics is really the driving force behind why there's such a lack of originality in Hollywood. Um, so there's really only two, like the movies that I wanted to write, the movies I was trying to write 10 years ago were sort of the mid-tier comedies, the maybe 120 to $150 million to produce, things like Hangover or Identity Thief, like Craig worked on, and I worked with, you know, talked to him quite a bit about, um, we actually worked together a little bit while I was in Hollywood, and he was kind of a, acted in something of a mentor capacity. We, we you know, met a few times, corresponded quite a bit on, on different social media, on email. 
And, um, you know, things like The Heat or Horrible Bosses or um, Meet the Millers with Jason Sudeikis and uh, Jennifer Aniston. Those kind of like mid-tier comedies that used to be the real weekend popcorn fodder at the theaters. Um, anything that wasn't like a giant blockbuster like Transformers or Marvel or Star Wars type, you know, uh, yeah, your five or six weekends movie. in a row kind of yeah. movie. Yeah, your tentpole summer blockbusters. Anything that wasn't that... You could produce those for a modest amount of money. They'd make their money back. They weren't huge movies, but they were things people... You know, Ghostbusters was that 30 years ago, you know? Um, those are the kind of movies I really wanted to make. Those movies are all going to Netflix now. So what we're left with is the really big blockbuster tentpole summer release kind of movies, either whether they go to streaming now or if the theaters ever come back, are going to have to probably, for, for the foreseeable future, still be the kind of movies that you just mentioned about... Retreads, remakes, things that are based on other things. Known quantities. And that definitely includes, yeah, known quantities, IPs that come from other genres, and that very much includes the subject of what we're talking about today, which is the video game movie, which is something that goes back quite a bit farther than I think most people realize, but it's it's kind of been a fixture (laughs) of the Cineplex for a good many years now, and they always suck, so we're going to try and figure out why that is. Right, and and then counter to that, and it, it doesn't always have to be straight from a video game. Of course, we've seen other uh, uh, adaptation movies taken from odd sources. I think they made a Battleship movie a couple of years ago, and <laughs> yes, they did, based off of Battleship and whatever the fuck Pixels was. I don't know what that was, but uh, let's not, uh, the best, less said about that, the better. <laughs> you know, and 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 as an aside, I didn't actually hate that one as much as I thought i would which is a sheer indication of brain damage i'm sure Um, (laughs) but i mean there are various adaptations that come from a variety of sources like you said comic book tv show book uh video game uh wherever uh if you had like a a one season hit on tv back in the day maybe you get a movie out of that nowadays you never know yeah anything um, that has any kind of nostalgia behind it at all any built-in audience is, is fodder for adaptation Right, I mean, so I think I heard, weren't they making like a Pong movie at one point or some stupid shit like that? On the Script Notes podcast, they actually joke about that quite a bit. Like, they talk about, you know, we've seen some really, like, you know, if you're going to make a movie based on, like, you just referenced Battleship, like a board game. Um, Like Clue, nobody's going to deny that Clue with Bernadette Peters and Tim Curry back in the 80s was a fantastic movie that was ostensibly based on a board game. But Clue also had identifiable characters and a theoretical murder mystery plot. So you could actually extrapolate that pretty easily into a film because those were, that was, you know, existing uh, things, colorful characters, uh, a a plot of intrigue and a whodunit. Those are things that are easily translatable to the film medium. But Battleship. Battleship is... You can play Battleship with a pen and paper on a piece of uh, graph paper. (laughs) There's no plot, no characters. You've got boats. You've got numbers. You know, it just goes to show sort of the desperation of, like, where can we go to find something people know about, something that exists in their brains already that we can then turn into a movie and maybe make a couple of bucks on. It's very cynical. It's very, um, you know, profit-driven. There's there's very little creativity to it, but um, that's kind of where we are now with that landscape. And one of the great things that me and you have both have talked about this, uh, we've got a, a guest that we're working on booking for the show uh, who does uh, the mockumentaries, or not mockumentaries, excuse me, the mockbusters, I think is what they're called. And uh, so we're working on, on that. I think we're still working on that one, right? Yeah. Pretty sure we are. But this uh, there's an entire genre of movies made just mocking blockbusters. Uh, like, so you got your Transformers, you got your Transmorphers. If it's anything... Uh, like 
popular in the mainstream pop culture, you're going to see a version of it made very poorly, very cheaply. Snakes on a plane uh, became snakes on a train. <laughs> uh, snakes on a trilogy. That's what we need. We need one more to round that out. Snakes um, on a boat, I guess, would be the next logical. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Let's just flesh it out uh, to the fullest extent. Tired of these motherfucking snakes on this goddamn boat. Uh, <laughs> doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Not the same ring, but uh, uh, there, there's this, this plethora of, of adaptation. But, of course, the, the one with the most notoriety uh, obviously is going to have to fall towards uh, translation of uh, video game properties to movies. So we're going to take a real short break. We're going to come back. We've got a list generated of, of some of the best and worst in Hollywood, and we're going to kind of see where it works, where it doesn't, and why uh, when we come back. Uh, stick around. Welcome back. Okay, so as promised, we have this list that I have generated of just uh, uh, some of the more uh, quote-unquote popular uh, video game adaptations uh, into movie that have taken place over the last couple of decades. And, and I'm going to kind of go down the list, and, and some of these are great, some of these are less than great. Uh, we're going to kind of just pick them apart and see why they worked, if they worked, and where they worked, and why they didn't, if they didn't. So... Uh, Jim, did you have any then that stuck out in your mind that you can think of off the cuff? Well, I think one of the first sort of video game movies that that hit that hit the mainstream that was really um, both one that people were aware of and one that also is the most frequently cited for Christ, these are shit is the <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie starring Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo, and for some reason Dennis Hopper. That is on the list. Now, I remember a few years ago, I had never watched the whole thing, and for good reason. I mean, if anyone's watched it, it's absolute dog shit. It's tough There's, shit. That's, it's almost, charitable to call it dog that's shit. That's charitable, yeah. Uh, uh, as you said, I, I have no idea how uh, such storied actors as uh, Bob Hoskins and, uh, and Dennis Hopper ended up in this dumpster fire of a movie, but... And when they say it's based on a on a movie on a video game property, that's that's putting it very loose. Uh, the 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 very tenuous grasp at adaptation, but uh, it's a movie that even the the actors who acted in it didn't understand what the hell was going on. Nobody really understood what the hell was going on, and I you know I, I've read some stories about the the, the very troubled production of that film how they bought the rights to it and then didn't know what because it was such a popular game i mean it was you know i remember playing super mario brothers in the bowling alley arcade that was pretty close to the house where i grew up and i pumped tons of quarters into that and then when the original nintendo entertainment system came out and it was it was ostensibly an arcade perfect reproduction which is not saying a whole lot about you know what the arcades were like at that point right right it was the first game that i saw that was pretty much the same on on a arcade console or an arcade cabinet as it was a home console um, so it was an incredibly popular property, and it sold a, a, a trillion consoles. But, you know, if you're trying to... Well, they bought the rights to it. The studio bought the rights to it, and then weren't really sure what the hell they were going to do with it. And as they were shooting, they were rewriting the script, they were introducing things, they were taking things out. And if you watch it, it really is just a translation of chaos. It's There's 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 <laughs> things happening in that movie that had that there had no business happening in any movie, much less uh, you know coming from source material that people kind of understood. There, I argue, I would argue, is a way. There would be a way to make a Super Mario movie that would be reasonably faithful to the source material, that would incorporate elements from the games that people would recognize, understand, and, and appreciate, but 
this wasn't it. This wasn't even close to it. I would think it would have to be animated, like Shrek or, or like, uh, uh, it's terrible to even mention this one in the same breath, but like the, the Angry Birds game, the oh, Angry Jesus. Birds movie. It's shit terrible. It's on my list. But uh, uh, Super Mario Brothers lends itself to an animation style. It lends itself to that goofy, cartoony kind of world uh, that you just can't do gritty realism to. I mean, it's just, yeah. just not a whole lot of realism to it. Well, the 80s uh, definitely had that whole... I don't remember. I'm, I'm blanking on the exact year that Super Mario Brothers came out. But it was definitely sort of like um, in the same vein of the arguably very successful. I still have quite a bit of love for the 1989 Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Batman, which was kind of like a welcome update from the goofy Bang Zoom Pow 60s campy Adam West and, and Burt Ward Batman. A very um, you stylized know, because, kind of... yeah. Very sort yeah. of like when when, when uh, Dark Knight came out in 1986, the Frank Miller comic, and it sort of re-said, hey, look, this is this is a guy who dresses up like Dracula to punch people who to get back at, find closure, people who are killing his parents. There's a lot of darkness inherent in this character in this story, so we can explore that in an interpretation of it. But, you know, Super Mario Brothers is all bright colors and fun music and wacky action, so to, to kind of take it and try and recast it in the mold of, of the gritty reboot Batman thing... Uh, which you could tell they were kind of going for, but they couldn't really decide if they wanted it to be goofy or, or 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 gritty, and it just, nothing about that movie worked. A couple of the performances weren't terrible. I mean, Hoskins gave it his best shot, and Leguizamo, I think. I'm a fan point, of Leguizamo anywhere. Yeah, he's, he's the, always the best thing about everything he's in, and you could tell that he kind of like looked at the script and thought, okay, I'm just going to go for broke and be as, as, you know, do whatever the <laughs> hell I want. So he was delightful in it, but, you know, good performances in the service of absolute garbage material are never going to be, it's just, you got to have a lot more going for a movie than that. Right. And now down the list, of course, Super Mario Brothers was definitely on that list, but we're going to kind of play bad with the good. Now, one of the earlier uh, uh, movies, now this is kind of coming as a pair, okay, so bear with me. The next one I mentioned is going to be actually fairly decent for what it was, and it's going to follow up with its counterpoint that was again back into the realm of... I know exactly what you're going to say. Do you? Oh, yeah. Nate, what's the first? What's the good one? The good one? The first Mortal Kombat movie. There you go. Mortal Kombat. The second one? Kind of dog shit. Which one? Uh, well, I thought I thought you were referring to Mortal Kombat and its, its sequel. Oh, no. Where no, Christopher no, no. Lambert was replaced by the guy who played um, uh, Ajax in The Warriors. Which is a great film, but you know, nonetheless. Uh, so I thought no, you were talking about no, the, the no, Mortal no. Kombat quote unquote series, as it as it were, the two movies there. But in Mortal the Kombat, we can. In, in the good realm, I was going to discuss Mortal Kombat. On the bad side of that, I wanted to discuss another fighting game, Street Fighter. Oh, uh, yeah, those uh, two are an, kind of sides of the same coin. Right. So with the Mortal Kombat movie, you've already got this cast of characters that are very cartoony, but can easily lend themselves to a bit more graphic violence, a bit more. Uh, realism grittiness realism and and uh the story doesn't have to make a fuckload of sense because it's just uh good guys fighting bad guys for the control of of earth and and try to keep yeah. out world from dominating earth it's a very simple story it doesn't take a lot of uh, uh detours or unnecessary turns I mean, it there was essentially much... a story in the original game itself. I mean, you've got, right. you know, the, the Earth Warriors versus the Outworld Warriors fighting for control of the Earth. And even though that's a kind of a thin story, and it really is just in service of, you know, random matchups between fighters, it's still, you know, a, a karate tournament 
uh, ostensibly was was uh, behind the beloved Karate Kid, which we now have, of course, Cobra Kai and a couple sequels and even a reboot with Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan. So that's that's a pretty <laughs> beloved property. Yeah, we won't talk about that. Um, but there, there is a built-in story to Mortal Kombat, so that, I think, lent itself at least somewhat to... We have a tournament. We're fighting for control of the Earth. It's an easy thing to understand, and they took it right from the, 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 the video games. They honored the source material in that way. I think that's why, you know, Mortal Kombat, even though it wasn't fantastic, is kind of the exception that proves the rule that video game movies are dog shit. Because I actually really enjoyed it at the time, and despite some pretty dodgy CGI, I think it still kind of holds up now. It does, and in fact, it has me looking forward to the reboot that they're making right now. I haven't yes, seen a April, whole lot about it. I guess it. that's coming out. Yeah. Right, but... The fact of the matter is, is on the flip side of that coin, like you said, Outworld versus Earth Warriors, it's a very thin concept. It doesn't need a whole lot because all it is is a lot of uh, high-tech ninja punching and kicking and and, and whatever. But Mortal Uh, Kombat had going for it some pretty colorful, uh, well-defined characters that you you, you could see on the screen if you're playing it at the arcade, or you can also see it on the screen, and they, they made it largely intact. They didn't screw it up too much. I think the main, the one character that departed quite a bit from his original iteration was Shang Tsung. They made him kind of like a more, you know, cool brooding bad guy in a leather jacket rather than like a dude in like traditional uh, fighting attire. Um, right. You know, with a, with a malleable age, even though that did kind of come into play. And uh, Corey Tagawa being Shang, he's a fantastic actor, and I adore him and everything he's in. But mostly, you, you had your characters from the game even some of the like minor characters that made cameos and they kind of ripped them directly off the the, the pixels, uh, the sprites, and just slapped them right on the screen, largely unmolested. And I think it was it, it was that's one of the reasons why it worked as well as it did. Right, and then on the flip side, you have your Street Fighter, uh, oh, yeah. the Jean Claude Van Damme vehicle, starring oh one of his last roles, Raul Julia. Who, <sighs> God, he's that fantastic. movie. That movie didn't deserve Raul Julia. Raul Julia didn't no. deserve that movie. Jesus, no, it did not. But uh, he was fantastic. Uh, but uh, another great performance, just, Leguizamo-like, and, and a good performance in service of shit material. Right, and and that movie, and Street Fighter never really had much in the way of uh, of uh, a thread. It was just a, a tournament. Uh, you had the loose idea that uh, Bison was the bad guy, but even up to the release of the first Street Fighter Two game, uh, Bison and uh, uh, Balrog uh, was it Balrog? Not Balrog. It was Balrog. Was yeah, was it? Uh, the Mike Tyson wannabe. They had to sw- swap uh, their switched, names back and forth. Because they got the sued. Version. Yeah, they did. Because Mike mean, Tyson was litigious. And, you know, you got a guy that looks just like Mike Tyson in the game, and then you got a character named M. Bison. You know, <laughs> they made him the, the kind of square-shouldered, epaulet-wearing Russian, uh, well, sort, sort of like, you know, pseudo-fascist bad guy. Because uh, right. they had to, they just, they, it was the laziest, you know, dodge of a, of a cease and desist order ever. They just swapped two <laughs> character names in a really nonsensical way. But, uh, you know, they, they, they did the bare minimum they needed to to escape that lawsuit. But, yeah, that's that was kind of funny, I've always thought. It's a nice little weird piece of trivia history about that game and that movie. But the movie's terrible. I mean, the movie's no fucking terrible. It. It's, it's, it's a dumpster fire. And the, the reading of the, of the behind-the-scenes for that is, is also just quite comical but in, in, a, in, a, in a farcical kind of way because it's just... Uh, it, it, it almost seems it's just, like you said, it was a blatant cash grab. It didn't seem to be any kind of... Uh, real drive to create a, a, a coherent storyline. It didn't seem like there was any kind of real drive to make it anything more than just, hey, that's popular. Let's put it on screen. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Really, uh, you know, it was. It really does exist in, in contrast to Mortal Kombat because, uh, well, and then the other thing that I think is weird that is is another 
thing to kind of look at. I don't really, we're not going to solve this problem today, but you know, there's a little bit of cultural appropriation <laughs> happening in that, in, in both those movies, in, in kind of a, a, an analogous way, where you've got Christopher Lambert, the very French Christopher <laughs> Lambert, playing the very Chinese uh, thunder god Raiden, but it somehow kind of works. But then you've got the very Belgian French accented Jean-Claude Van Damme playing the aggressively American Colonel Guile in Street Fighter, and that for some reason was not as effective of a, of a, a casting choice as as the uh, weird no, uh, French-accented Chinese god in, in Mortal Kombat. No real reason to separate the two of them. It just kind of didn't work. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, okay, so we're going to go with uh, a little bit more contemporary pair. Oh, before we get off uh, Mortal Kombat real fast, I do want to make one other slight point that I think it was another sure. thing that helped Mortal Kombat to, to really be... Yeah. A more effective video game movie. I've never been a martial artist. I have friends who are, and I have a very good friend who lives in Phoenix who studies a couple of different disciplines. And I went to go see Mortal Kombat on the screen with him when it was originally released. I want to say '96 or thereabouts. And he was super impressed because he had been to several different mixed martial arts fighting tournaments, and he said just watching the fighters on screen, every one of the fighters um, that was depicted on screen in the Mortal Kombat film actually was choreographed in a fighting style that would have been consistent with their background. Interesting. So he said it's something that would have kind of sailed over the head of a lot of people who maybe weren't as well-versed in martial arts styles, but he said everybody on screen, whether it's a cultural or ethnic background that their character happens to share, um, fought in a style consistent with, with what they would if they were actually a real-world fighter. He said, so that kind of attention to detail, he said, uh, really contributed to the overall you know, believable as much as you can have a film that that is believable that asks you to suspend your disbelief of, of uh, otherworldly fighters, and you know you've got uh, reptile who's dodgy CGI and Goro who's dodgy animatronic. But he said, still, <laughs> the, the care that went into the actual fight sequences in that game was was not lost on somebody who actually knows anything about martial arts. And that's great. And, and like I said, I'm looking forward to the re-revamp that they're doing this year. And uh, very much so. I've seen some pictures from the set and and some of the CGI pictures, and they look pretty good. And and again, it's going to be something that's super easy to follow. There's not a huge deep backstory line. I mean, they're going to try, but they Ultimately, don't have it's about to. The fighting. It's right. It's about film. it's about the the one-on-one action between the two fighters at the time. So, but another contemporary matchup that I wanted to bring up uh, in the, in the good and in the bad. Um, and this is kind of kind of tie why my 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 whole thought process is on why these don't work so well. So bear with me. But we have two uh, examples: one good, one bad. We're going to start with the good. We're going to start with Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog gave us an adaptation that was a lot of fun, uh, but it also gave us an, a, a studio who was willing to make changes for a populace that wanted those changes. Because yes. I, I I saw the original trailer. I saw the original animatics for uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, and they weren't great. No, they took a, no, they were They not. took a lot of design liberties with that character that were, for no seeming reason other than, to, you know, uh, some guy in a design booth goes, hey, I think that looks cool. Uh, when in fact they had a really well developed style of a character already, and uh, when they released that first trailer, it met with such uh, immediate negative, backlash. immediate negative backlash that the studio actually spent the money and spent the time, took it back, and were like, okay, we heard you, we'll fix it, which never happens. No. Never. I mean, you know, we've talked quite a bit, and there's been a whole episode about toxic fandom, and we touched on it in the last episode about how fans assume ownership over a thing and think they have some say in the Dominion over what, what happens with it. But right. in this case, that, that turned out to be a pretty positive thing. I did see the original trailer, and I thought, Jesus Christ, what are they doing with this character that's so well-established and has such a, 
uh, a specific aesthetic across, you know, I mean, if, if you look at even the original um, uh, Sega Genesis games through, like, some of the games that came out, I mean, I remember buying a Dreamcast and thinking how well they'd preserve that character from, like, Sonic the Hedgehog through Sonic Adventure and Sonic Adventure 2, and then some of the games that have come out since then. He's right. got a very consistent design. He's immediately recognizable across several different hardware generations. So for them to just go ahead and say, we're going to make him look completely different in this film... It was a mistake, but they acknowledged it and they corrected it, and the film definitely came out better for that choice. Absolutely, and I, I rather enjoyed the film. Uh, they took a, a, a very, a, again, with video games, you have a very thin premise. You don't have a whole lot of complicated story to it. You got, uh, as you go along over the course of decades and, and whatever else a character's been around, you're going to, of course, pick up and build more story. But uh, if you're looking at just like a Sonic the Hedgehog story, uh they didn't have a whole lot of material to work with uh, yeah. that would work in, in a live action kind of setting. So I thought they took it in a fun direction. Uh, they took it somewhere that enabled it to uh, be different and yet still establish that mythos, if you will. Yeah, the games uh, that are well established enough and that have been around long enough to have enough of a built in uh, nostalgic fan base. We're talking, you know, uh, early side-scrolling platformers like Mario, like Sonic, like some of those kinds of games. And you're right, the stories are pretty thin. The stories of those games were run to the right, avoid obstacles, finish the level. That's all there really was <laughs> to them. And you had, you know, colorful settings that were easily identifiable. You had really a, a wide range of characters that you could really pick out of a lineup pretty easily. But the overall storyline was just run to the right, defeat the bad guy, avoid the obstacles. And right. so you weren't working with a lot. But, you know, in the intervening years, you've got, you know, the Sonic TV series, all the Sonic games that were more 3D-based that had different... And the same with Mario. Um, you know, you, you've got a, a more fleshed-out storyline and more fleshed-out characters to work with. So you've definitely got a little bit more to, uh, to... Just a little bit more meat to chew on when you're trying to work out the plots of these kinds of things. Right, and I feel like I'm being kind of hypocritical when I say that, that it worked for Sonic, but it didn't work for, for Mario Brothers. But, I mean, that's to your taste, but really trying to flesh out Mario in the way that they did it, try to make it gritty realism, didn't seem to work. But at the same time, they didn't change really the tone of the Sonic the Hedgehog movies. They allowed the Sonic the Hedgehog movie to be... Uh, goofy and to be silly and to yeah. not lose that and to childlike... be upbeat and fast-paced and colorful and cartoonish right right which is everything the game was now as a counterpoint to that i'm going to take a, a hard stance against a movie that i did i actually kind of enjoyed the movie i'm going to say it outright but it was a critical box office failure and it's going to lead to my overall discussion of why this doesn't work and that of course is assassin's creed Oh. Uh, Assassin's Creed was released with with Michael Fassbender in the lead role, and and uh, uh, ultimately very forgettable as a movie. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't great, but here's kind of uh, where I think, uh, and and I kind of wanted to get your take on this. We didn't discuss this ahead of time, so because uh, I, I wanted to get your take on camera here, so yeah, uh, but. I think a large part of the reason that we have a trouble adapting, even especially now as video games become these uh, 30 and 40 and 50 and upwards of 100 hour ordeals, yeah, uh, we have a hard time shrinking and adapting that material down to a two hour movie. Yeah, a in real particular, hard 
Right. Assassin's Creed has, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode where you, uh, you know, went to go play uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla and quickly realized that if you hadn't played Origins and Odyssey, you were going to miss big chunks of the story. Assassin's Creed is not unique, but it stands out certainly among video games for having a lore that is 15 years deep. And if you're not sure, you know, people look at the trailers, oh, it's historical tourism, you're playing a Viking, you're playing a, uh, a you know, an Egyptian, you're playing a, a, a Greek Peloponnesian war mercenary. These are easy concepts to understand, but as soon as you start talking about, oh, but then you have to talk about the Isu precursors and all of the pieces of Eden and all of these different things, and then, of course, there's a modern-day component with people sitting in the Animus regressing through past DNA memories, and, you know, it, people just glaze over because the, 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 the lore of it, unless you've been playing from the first game, which came out in 2007, and you've played every game and turned over every stone in these like you said lengthy 60 100 120 hour long games just to finish the main story to say nothing of the side quests you know <laughs> let's make a two-hour movie out of 15 years worth of lore that that crosses you know three different hardware generations it's, right. it's a daunting prospect and and i think you see the the fruits of that when you watch the movie it was clearly well-intentioned they had some decent ideas but they didn't have the time the span to stretch it out yeah, this kind of goes to the core of what I've come to understand about narrative storytelling, and this is going to get real super geeky, narrative storytelling versus video game storytelling. Video game storytelling, especially when you're dealing with these epic open world sprawling things, can take several different branching directions. You are the protagonist, you do, to a certain degree can control the action, go anywhere, do anything is kind of the elevator pitch for some of these games, um, but movies... A lot of people. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ruin movies for a lot of people. So if you don't want to ruin movies for yourself, close your ears. But movies, and I know this because I spent a little bit of time in Hollywood working on scripts. But movies must necessarily follow a very rigid structure of storytelling. Right. Um, it's it goes back to the Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces hero's journey, which is plotted on a circle. And in a very, very broken down rudimentary sense, you've got a hero who lives in the realm of the known. Something happens called the inciting incident. And the hero, he or she, crosses over a, an invisible line at the top of the circle that sections off about the top third of the circle into the unknown. He or she meets a wise mentor. The wise mentor explains the larger world that they may not be aware of outside of their own experience. And then they learn their, their part in it. They go on this journey of discovery. Uh, and then at some point, the antagonist is introduced. Um, there's a midpoint at the bottom of the circle, which is either a false high or a false low. And then there's a montage sequence where things happen. That's called the fun and games section. And then there's a moment where the hero almost loses because they're just unprepared for this larger world they find themselves freshly stepping into and then they draw on the things they've learned through their wise mentor and their experience and learning about this larger world to battle back at the last minute win and then they return to the, the realm of the known the opposite side of the line on the top end of the circle wiser for the experience now this is a blueprint that fits every movie you've ever seen especially the big temple blockbusters um, Luke Skywalker starts off on Tatooine uh, Luke and Beru or, uh, Owen and Beru get blown up and then he meets uh obi-wan and then he learns about the larger world we learn about darth vader uh luke learns to use the force learns to use the lightsaber you know ostensibly wins goes back to tatooine to see the double sun coming at the end of the movie harry potter starts off under the stairs at privet drive he gets the owl from hogwarts that's his inciting incident goes to hogwarts meets dumbledore learns about he who shall not be named learns to use his magic beats him at the end of the movie goes back to the stairs katniss everdeen starts off in district 12 learns about the Hunger Games, figures it out, goes to the Capitol, learns about President Snow and Effie Trinket. You know, she and and, uh, and her friend 
uh, Pita, they they almost eat the berries, they almost lose, but they win, and then she goes back to it's it's a tale as old as time to steal something from Beauty and the Beast. It's a story that yeah. you've seen. You know, um, Neo starts off in the Matrix. I was just thinking the Matrix the entire time. He takes the pill. You know, he meets Morpheus. He learns about the Matrix. He learns about Agent Smith. He trades on his new skills and wins and then goes back into the Matrix. It's the same fucking story over and over again with different dialogue and different (laughs) characters. And we keep on swallowing it every time because it fucking works. The narrative, the linear, structured narrative of movies is something that people understand even if they don't understand why they understand it it's, right it's which like doesn't paintings. follow it doesn't follow the course of a narrative structure in a video game right level. video games Completely definitely do, there are linear like if you're playing an open world game like assassin's creed or you're playing something like you know grand theft auto you can choose you can pick and choose the direction you want and yes there's an underlying through line of story there's a, a narrative that goes through it and when you play what they call the main missions uh to advance the plot line it does follow the same sort of basic structure but because games are so you know interactive that's the thing movies are going to progress with you sitting passively in a chair looking at the screen but games are interactive so to be able to take that and shoehorn you know these sprawling narratives that that play out over many many weeks if you're playing them at home for a couple hours at a time months even sometimes like in the case of like uh skyrim which has been you know you can still play that game today and find new shit to do it's impossible if not difficult if not impossible to shoehorn that sprawling narrative into a two-hour movie without making some major concessions in terms of source material and what it is that you're able to do. So Assassin's Creed, they introduced a new protagonist, they screwed up the way the Animus works, and the basic underlying idea of regressing through past DNA memories to find historical artifacts um, by going through an ancestor's historical memory was preserved, but because they couldn't have the ability to really explain all the lore and all the, the the order of the ancient slash templars versus the assassins slash hidden ones you, you it's it's such an incredibly deep narrative that in order to really understand every bit of it you have to have played seven or eight games in a row 10 12 games in a row over 15 years that last around 100 hours each and that's a shitload of lore and a, a, a f- absolute shitload of experience to try and cram, cram into a two-hour movie that you're watching passively instead of experiencing actively i agree and 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 so a lot of these uh, experiences, games as experiences, mm-hmm. I think it's exactly what you're saying. Is it's, it's something that's meant to be interacted with. It's something that's meant to be uh, touched, felt, seen, emotionally dealt with, uh, yeah. as opposed to something, like you say, much more passive in a movie. So uh, we lose a lot of what makes these unique and what makes them individual. Uh, the Assassin's Creed uh, movie springs to mind. Uh, Doom springs to mind, the old uh, yep. Dwayne Johnson vehicle there. Uh, Tomb Raider springs to mind. They've done that several times, trying to make that a thing. And it's Even just, forgettable it stuff like Blood Rain and Prince of Persia they came out with that next to nobody both, saw. Both Even on my Jake list. Thank Gyllenhaal you, UA Bowl. A-lister. Yeah. Oh, oh, God, yeah. Don't get me started about UA Bowl. Yep. Um, but, and you got Hitman, and you got your Resident Evils, which are nothing like the Resident Evils of the... Other uh, video games. Umbrella is still there. There's still a virus, but they, they've it's it's an it's an it's an alternate sort of timeline um, within the same universe that tells a different story that's set adjacent to the, the events we know about, right. which is um, you know Weird. that's that's uh, it's it's a strange way of going about doing the storytelling. But you know, I guess better that than take characters we know and completely upend Fuck. them into doing Fuck things that up. they would. Yeah, it's it's this. Just, it, it almost seems like a fool's errand to even do it in the first place. 
So, I mean, and, and like I said, this list goes on and on, the good and the bad. Your Mortal Kombat's or your Street Fighters, your uh, your Tomb Raiders or your Warcrafts, or oh, you know, your Sonics or your Super Mario Brothers. You take the good, you take the bad. We got shit like Rampage, uh, Angry Birds. Uh, the list goes on of these adaptations that just don't work. Ballistic X versus Sever was one of the first ones, and that just didn't fly. Oh my god, was that Lucy Liu and Antonio? Lucy Banderas? Lucy Liu and Antonio Banderas, yeah. Which was, you know, not many people remember the video game it was based on, but I actually played that. I played a version of it on the Game Boy back in the day, and yeah. the game was pretty standard issue. It was, you know, stock garden variety action game. It wasn't terrible. But um, the, the the movie was just legendarily. If it was more famous, if it was based on a more famous property like Super Mario Brothers is, it would probably be the benchmark for this is why video game movies suck. But because Mario is a much more <laughs> famous property, because it was a worse movie, it just was based on a less well known property. Right. And so, uh, video game adaptations are very very hard to pin down, very very hard to nail. So we're gonna take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're gonna talk about the flip side of that coin, and that is. Uh, tie-ins to movies and television shows and where they're great and where they're not so stick around we'll be right back hi everybody welcome back okay so kind of the flip side of the coin of what we we're talking about with uh, uh video game adaptations into movies kind of by and large being a really hard shoe to fill uh specifically because there's such a dearth of a wide uh selection of material in most cases that it's really hard to cram them into this tiny little window, two-hour window that we have to engage with it. Of course, now we talked about it during the break, but there are notable exceptions to that, and then things like uh, uh, the one that springs to mind immediately was uh, The Witcher. Uh, the Witcher, mm -hmm. of course, being a very long, epic tale, but they didn't try to cram that into a two-hour movie. They stretched that out into like a ten-hour uh, I think it was what ten episodes. Yeah, five uh, episodes. I think of it. Well, yeah, it was, uh, eight or ten episodes of an hour each. Yeah. Right. So a decent amount of time to stretch that out into, at least a lot easier of a time to stretch the material out. If you eliminate side quests and everything else, and just stick to the main story. Yeah. And of course, um, Netflix would be the first ones to remind you that uh, they they even though The Witcher was an incredibly popular and very well received video game. Uh, Netflix was very clear in their press materials that they were not basing the Witcher series with Henry Cavill on the video games, but on the, and I'm going to butcher his name because it's Polish, Andrzej Sapowski's books were the, the source they went to for that. However, they did acknowledge that, of course, you can't ignore, you can't talk about the Witcher without acknowledging the games because they've been absurdly popular, more so than the books in a lot of circles. But they were very clear in saying this is based on the books, but we, they did nod to the games on, on a couple different levels. But right. still, you, you've got it, there's, there's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. Right, exactly. But and and I think that very very aptly proves the point that I was trying to make with the last segment was that it's hard to compact uh, you know 20, 30, 40, 100 hours worth of content into a 2-hour time block, even a 6-hour time block if we're talking a trilogy. So, yeah. But now on the other hand, we have uh tie-in uh, merchandise video games. Uh things like uh well, I'm going to start bad because, I mean, it's really easy to find bad examples rather than good examples. Uh, I used to watch a show called The Shield. Uh, it had Michael Chiklis in it as a, as a rogue cop, and uh, they made a really shitty video game tie-in for that. I never uh, knew I, that. I watched a, uh, it was a PlayStation 2 game. Um, 
Likewise, I watched a show called 24, which some of you may have known, uh, with Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, they stretched that concept out into a video game as well, also for the PlayStation 2. Uh, and again, another PlayStation 2 game that was at the top of my list was The Sopranos. Uh, and, and they stretched that into uh, a video game. And it I was completely kind of... unaware of all three of those. I never knew oh. those were video games. I think I still own all three of them. They're in the garage, but... They're, they're lackluster, to say the least. And, and that's kind of the point I'm getting at with this part here is there's a lot of the reverse kind of thing happening with uh, uh, tie-in video games to popular franchises or popular movies. Now, uh, the thing that actually put this into my mind is uh, we, we use Redbox a lot when it was still renting video games and such, sure. uh, which... Uh, they don't do any more for good or for bad. Whatever you want to say about that, they don't do it. But uh, we played, uh, or I didn't play it. My wife and my kid played uh, the Jumanji uh, video game hmm. uh, that was released. And uh, it was a tie-in for the, I want to say it was the newest movie, but it was like the first movie. They did like a PlayStation 4 tie-in game that they played. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm, I want to say it was available for Xbox and for Switch as well, but uh, it was terrible, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and, and I started going down a list of all the different uh, uh, video games based on just the weirdest properties. And holy shit, does that rabbit hole get deep. To include one of my absolute favorite discoveries, and I want to play it, uh, for the original NES, two games, White Men Can't Jump... The old Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson basketball movie. Wow. And Home Improvement. No the Tim shit. Allen show. Uh, <gasps> and and it's a side-scroller where you have to use tools to defend the neighborhood from aliens and shit like that. And I don't even know where they bent this concept from. But what this brings to mind for me, and, and, and you can kind of weigh in on this as you feel like... The same problem we had with adapting uh, video games to movies where you had this wide swath of material to cut through to uh, edit into a two-hour movie and, and why that doesn't work oftentimes, you have the exact opposite of a problem. You have so much source material that to stretch it into these video games, into one coherent story for a video game that makes sense to a lot of people... It just doesn't oftentimes work real well. I mean, and there are examples that 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 go against that. I mean, I, I'm the first to admit I've enjoyed my fair share of Star Wars video games, for instance. Oh or yeah, Lord of the Rings video games with like uh, uh, Fall of Mordor, or what is it, Rise of Mordor, War for War, Shadow of War, all those uh, those games that they've come out with are fantastic. But uh, there's a even kind of split between the really really shitty uh, movie tie-in and TV tie-in video games versus the the games that get it right. What, what's your thoughts on that? I remember playing. There were a whole bunch of those available for the NES back in the day. I remember being super disappointed with like the Jaws NES game with the Back to the <laughs> Future NES game, which was just a joke. Um, and there was also a Total Recall NES game, which was was pretty abysmal. The Friday the Thirteenth NES game was bad. Um, so Punisher. yeah, there's, there's a, a pretty I yeah. I played the Punisher, Punisher yeah. game. That was terrible. There's a pretty rich history of uh, of 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 both. No matter which direction you're going into the equation, movie to video game or video game to movie, of just one one particular medium not understanding the the 
trappings and confines of the other and trying to just, hey, if you like this property, then you might like this property being delivered to you through another platform. And it just, it almost never works. Um, because as much as there's been a line blurred between, you know, Michael Bay's movies, they, they criticize them, they say they're just full of whiz-bang explosions, they look like video games. And then you've got um, the other side of the coin with, well, you know, movie or video games now have too many cinematic breaks and too many cutscenes and quick-time events that are all obviously inspired by, by movies. Um, the, people just need to realize, you know, whether or not you've got a, an IP that you're going to make something out of, they're just two different things. And it's really difficult to, to, to take one and turn it into the other without losing something in translation. Not impossible. Um, you know, we started off with, with the sort of blanket statement that all these are dog shit. And it, while it is true, some are far less dog shit than others. Like, I don't think anybody was, even though Sonic and Mortal Kombat that we mentioned as being like, you know, standouts and better than average, they were still not great. They still had their issues. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, people just need to understand, creators, people who are in the video game industry and the movie industry, just need to understand we're talking about two entirely different genres, two different platforms, two different delivery systems for entertainment that each have their own confines and their own expectations. And when you try to, you know, force one to take the shape of the other, it really definitely is square peg round hole time on a lot of levels. Now, do you think that the reason that things like Star Wars video games can uh, succeed in a marketplace that is, is overrun with tie-in uh, trash uh, is because Star Wars isn't even confined to just movies anymore? Is it because huh. Star Wars has TV shows and comic books and books and radio dramas and everything else that it allows it to do that kind of uh, split focus? And that's possibly it, and I think it also what also has to do with, with that is that I think Star Wars, and maybe this wasn't Lucas's intention, I can't obviously get inside his head and figure it out, but even going back to A New Hope, I think there were a lot of things in Star Wars that were, if not intended to be based on or analogous to video games, lent themselves very well to that medium. Some of the earliest video games we've ever had were things like Asteroids, even Computer Space on IBM in the 60s, uh, Space Invaders. You've got, you know, you're navigating a spaceship in outer space, and there were huge sections of dogfights in uh, the Star Wars movies, so right there you've got a nice big overlap. Um, and when the advent of, like, 3D came along, and we could actually have you running through environments with a lightsaber or a blaster or what have you, there are just a lot of, of elements in the Star Wars movies that happen to be things that have been part of video games for a very, very long time. I remember the arcade in my hometown growing up when I was in grade school actually had the original Vector Star Wars, where you mm -hmm. could, you know, uh, that was the, one of the first games to include digitized speech and R2 beeps, and it was pretty rudimentary in terms of the graphics, but those Vector graphics were still incredibly fluid, and really, even a wireframe TIE fighter still looks like a TIE fighter. Um, so you're going to get that feel, and you're going to understand that 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 thing that they're trying to get across. So I think mm -hmm. Star Wars, whether or not it was intentional on, on, on Lucas's part, was able to include a lot of elements that just translated really well to the video games of the time and also the video games of now. So what you've got is a legacy of both film and video games that goes back, that's successful on both levels, going back, you know, 30, 40 years now, um, that just works for both of those because there are so many elements that can overlap between the two that work in both contexts. So if you're if you're looking to kind of like uh, put a capper on the whole conversation here now, if you you spend enough time in Hollywood, you've been around the Hollywood type enough, you certainly have your experience with uh, film writing and also with uh, 
just watching movies and playing video games, you kind of run the gamut with that. So I figure you're kind of a good source to talk to about it. Uh, if you were to say, have any advice to uh, a movie company or a TV company getting ready to design a property based off of a known uh, quantity, like a, uh, of like a video game, for instance, or God forbid, a, a, a board game or <laughs> whatever the hell they're trying to tie in. What would your best advice be to those people trying to do a movie tie-in like that? Well, I think the lines are blurring somewhat, especially between narrative-driven as opposed to, I guess, open-world or your side-scrolling platforming video games. There's a lot of narrative-driven video games that have a very uh, clearly defined story, and they've become very cinematic in a way. So one of the things that maybe people listening to this have read about is that there is a... Uh, a, a miniseries coming up on HBO. It's in the very early stages of development. I'm not really sure where it is. I don't think they've started shooting yet. But they're making a series based on The Last of Us, um, which is one of the most you know lauded and reasonably so. Those two games, even though the second game had some controversies because of you know like the things we talked about last time with toxic fandom about people. Why are they bringing LGBTQ characters into this? Why do I have to play it? You know, it's still a very heavily narrative-driven video game, so it lends itself well better, I think, to a narrative-driven storyline. And I, I've mentioned his name a couple times in this podcast, Craig Mazin, who was just won an Emmy for uh, um, the HBO Chernobyl series last year, two years ago. He, because of the success of that series, and because if you listen to the Script Notes podcast, which I recommend you do if you have any interest in how Hollywood works and how the screenwriting process, it's, it's a pretty narrow audience, but I love it. He's <laughs> talked quite a bit about um, the fact that he's a gamer. He's very not not just a, he's a tabletop gamer too. He and the co-host on that podcast, John August, actually have a D and D group they get together for. So these guys intrinsically understand what the narrative structure of games is like. Um, and so Craig has talked quite a bit about making sure that he gets this right because he loves The Last of Us. It's one of the reasons he and Neil Druckmann actually are, are co-executive producing, and Craig is show running and writing everything. Um, so he's talked quite a bit about getting it right, and that's in terms of casting, that's in terms of storyline, that's in terms of creating the world so that it feels consistent. Um, I think if you're looking to adapt a property, the couple things that I'd say you have to be aware of is fans love this property for a reason. They're into it because there are certain aspects of it that they like, and if you're going to create something based on something else, get into that universe, play the game, understand what, the, what makes that, that, that property special, what makes that story unique, what makes it worth telling in another medium besides the one it was originally told in, and then don't take away the things that the fans love about it. Don't take away the character interactions, don't take away the story elements, the world building parts that make it what it is. Don't try and change anything too drastically from the original source material. Um, and also make sure that you get the casting right. And of course, that's a separate job. Creators of shows have a certain amount of sway over casting. It's mostly casting directors, and you know that as well as anybody. But um, make sure that you find performers that embody the characters, if there are characters to embody, in a way that makes sense for the original. It's just going back to the well of the original source material is never going to serve you wrong when you're trying to adapt a video game property. So key into what makes it special. Um, find new things to do with the story, but don't deviate too much from the norm and make sure that you get your characters right. Because people love Joel and Ellie from The Last of Us for a reason, for many reasons. So, you know, doing anything to them or with them that would be a betrayal of their central character is... And it's a tough road to hell. Following, you know, balancing the, the, the complicated 
interplay between honoring the source material and hammering it into a shape that is appropriate for a narrative, a passive narrative storytelling experience is not easy. And, you know, I think if nothing else, we've proven over the last 45 minutes to hour that it it goes poorly more often than it goes well. Um, So it's very, very hard to do and to do well. It's not impossible, but it's really, really hard to do. But honoring the characters, honoring the story, understanding what makes it special, and not fucking with it too much, just not taking it too much out of its lane, and trying to make it something other than what it is. I have super high hopes for the Last of Us series, not just because I happen to at least a little bit know the guy who's responsible for crafting it, um, but the fact that he's a gamer, and he's spoken quite a bit in the press and on his own podcast about making sure that he doesn't fuck it up. Because he loves these games as much as anybody does, and so I trust him to helm this in a way that makes sense, and in a way that you know people who are brand new to it, who have never played the games, are going to intrinsically understand why they're so beloved, and people who've played the games are going to watch it and go, that was immensely satisfying. It's hard, it's not impossible, um, but I think that, I have very high hopes for that Last of Us series, kind of setting a new standard, just because I know, to a certain extent, the intentions of what the creator are, what, what the intentions are of the creator, and I know right. he's a gamer, so I know he's going to do as, as 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 well as he can. And he's also got free reign from HBO because he, because uh, Chernobyl did so well, won a mu- multiple Emmys and Baftas, and so he's he's got quite a bit of capital to spend, creative capital over there. Um, so I, I I have very high hopes for that turning out to be kind of the new benchmark for okay, maybe we can make video entertainment movies, TV series out of video games without necessarily cutting the knees up from under what made the first iteration of this such a special thing. All of this, this entire conversation was just my clever way to get in, in touch with you about, hey, I got an idea for a screenplay. Check this out. Okay. Hit me. I mentioned my favorite game, uh, Split Second, right? Yeah. It's a racing game, ostensibly set up to be a reality television show. I think we can write this. I think we can sell this. We'll make a million dollars. It'll be fantastic. Um, we just have to get the rights from Disney. Hmm, that may be challenging. Or maybe we could, you know, pitch it to Disney. They've got their own Disney Interactive uh, video game still. They've got their video game empire. Um, Nah, I I love it. And and I just am pushing that game again. That's a game that looks like a tie-in game. It's a game that looks like there should be some direct material related to it, but there's not. And I think that's what I enjoyed about it. Well, there's a thing in the Hollywood world called the elevator pitch. And in its purest form, it is... Uh, you're in an elevator with somebody who's a decision maker in the film industry and you pitch them the idea that you have and it, the most basic form of the elevator pitch is it's X meets Y. These are two properties that you already understand that you probably have already seen and if I tell you it's this thing meets that thing it'll give you an idea of what it is that I envision for this project. So I guess the elevator pitch for Split Second would be it is um, Running Man meets Fast and Furious. That's a that's a really good way to put it. I like that. So. Hey, Disney, let's get this happening. Let's make this happen. I got a million yeah. ideas. But anyway, so yeah, I, I want to thank you guys for, for listening in on this conversation. Like I said, it's not impossible to have a tie-in video game uh, to a property that is faithful to the property and decent to play. Uh, even EA gets it right every now and again. I'm looking at you, uh, Star Wars Fallen Order. Oh, sure. Um, but for every Fallen Order, we get 10 of the, the S.H.I.E.L.D., or the 24, or Home Improvement, or whatever the hell you want to say. <gasps> Your Dark Man game uh, for the NES, or anything like that. These tie-in games that suck. And, and, and on the flip side of that coin, for every Super Mario Brothers, or Street Fighter, or X vs. Sever, or 
you, you sometimes you stumble into a Mortal Kombat or you stumble into a Sonic the Hedgehog or a Detective Pikachu, which I hate Pokemon, <laughs> but I really, really like that movie. I don't know why. <laughs> but every now and again, you're able to get it right. So as long as you don't give your property to the UA Bowl, you should be fine. Never do that. Uh, never do that. Or he'll fight you physically. And you'll lose. He's a big man. He's a big dude, but uh, on behalf of Jim and myself, I want to thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. Once again, if you want to reach out and get in touch with the show, you can do that on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash feelyourfandom, our soon-to-be-revamped website, which is feelyourfandom.net, and also our email addresses, which are... Uh, feel your fandom at gmail.com uh, but I want to thank you guys for listening in again and do remember that everything is fandom and fandom is everything take care